turn into ways that I start to doubt the truths that I know. What changes? Did the truth change? No. My acceptance of it changes because I doubt. I don't know. I don't experience God's comfort. And so then they start to work backwards from there. The time of the start questioning is not after those doubts have taken root. The time of the start questioning those doubts is now. And if you're having doubts like that today, then I hope that this is a part of asking those questions of your doubts. I need to ask those questions about the motives that keep my faith being resilient in the midst of suffering. Why? If I'm choosing a path that does not lead to the care of God, then there is a place where I have misshapen desires, what the Bible calls idolatry. In other words, maybe the problem isn't with God. The problem is with me. So before we get to that phrase, because he cares for you, we see Peter Bring in a different phrase, the one before that. So let's go back to 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This passage leads us to the idea that if you don't know God's care, you don't cast your anxieties onto him. We haven't committed fully. You and I, we're still too self-reliant to make such an act of faith. We haven't yet come to an end of ourselves. So when God, in his faithfulness, takes something away, we see just how reliant we are on ourselves. And one of the key passages whenever we talk about anxiety or whenever I struggle with it, we turn to is Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, of not, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That one hits me every time. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love this passage so much, even though that one about adding single hours today, I that one, that one I struggle with very much. And that one always comes in and it's like, yeah, you're, you're, mis, you're misspending your anxious thoughts. This passage promises God's faithfulness to, faithfulness to us and it challenges us to cast our anxieties onto him. But the question we have to ask is, if this is true and if I should not worry, what is keeping me from doing it? What is keeping me from casting my anxieties onto him? Why do I keep coming back to this passage with my head down saying, well, missed it again. 
I want to point to the verses before this one in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why do we have anxieties? Because we have areas in our lives that we are holding on to. We have treasures on earth. And when those treasures get threatened, we are anxious. These are areas where we do not depend on God, but rather depend on ourselves. You want to know what that is, by the way? Some of you might be able to call it out. Some of you may say, I don't know. I'll ask it this way. What makes you angry? And I'm not talking about the claim that most of us don't have to some sort of righteous anger. I'm talking about anger that comes out in hatred and contempt of others. Born out of a pride that covers over your insecurity. Anger that may be born out of fear that in the end, God and his promises aren't enough for you or your family or your community or your church or your country or anything under attack from the various looming threats in our world. In each of these places that keep you anxious, you might be holding on to some earthly treasure that you feel is threatened. Where do you find yourself unable to show compassion? To think the best of people. People not in, in, our, in your circle that are different from you. Now, if you truly believe the gospel, then the sovereign Lord of the universe tells you that you are a sinner saved by grace, that you bring nothing to the table, and that he chose to die for you, to call you to his kingdom, and to adopt you into his family. However, if that faith does not make it all the way down, there will still be areas where you are trying to find your assurance in this world. Where does this come from? In the end, it comes from a lack of faith. We don't trust God enough to believe what he says, and we push the issue back to us. I say in my heart, if God won't do it, then I have to. And you might not have put that sort of language on it. I haven't. But I think we all know that that desire is in our heart, and that's the core of it, even if I know better than to say those words. And this is where self-righteousness is born, If I build up my own status and if someone else can't carry that load in my mind, they clearly aren't living up to the standard. And I sit in judgment on them. Not compassion. Judgment. Contempt. If anyone threatens the significance that I find, then they are my enemy. Thus, I will work and I will strive to fight to find significance rather than recognizing that I need God And I often do this at the expense of my brothers and sisters in the faith. Let's look at James 4, 1 through 3. We got James 4? There it is. All right. What causes quarrels? There we go. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet. And cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Why? Why do we strive so hard to carry these loads when God says that we can cast them unto Him? Or as James says here, why why don't we ask God? 
we don't cast our anxieties onto God. We don't release it to God because at our core, we do not trust him. We want our schedule, our autonomy, and if God's is different, then that causes a problem for us. So rather than cast our cares unto him, we cling to what we know, and we open up more doors of pain for ourselves. Let's go back to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Step back one more. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties unto him, casting all your anxieties unto him, because he cares for you. So this is the point I think that Peter is working towards with the phrase, at the proper time, he will exalt you. So we have God's care. We see that we don't cast our anxieties on him. We don't cast our anxieties on him because we don't trust him. We're not willing to submit to his schedule. The proper time is his time. We have the same problem as Adam and Eve in that way. They did not trust God's promise to care for them and were led astray to fill themselves. Let's look at Genesis 3, 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of, any, may eat of the fruit trees, fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Look at the temptation. Satan told Eve that she would be like God. And she saw, quote, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for wisdom. God's promise wasn't good enough because Eve lacked the faith to look beyond the, the temptation that was right in front of her. They didn't want to depend on God. It was too enticing. It's right here. Where's God? We all do the same thing. God says, wait for me, but we can't abide that. We want answers. We want them now. So we push and push and go down roads of temptation because God's timing isn't good enough for our plan. As Grady discussed this week, the due time that Peter talks about is at the end of all things. When everything in this world comes to its culmination and the promised second coming of Christ takes place with the new heavens and the new earth. This, leads, this call leads us not to a temporary focus on our, on our circumstances, but on a heavenly perspective. I think it's reflected in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 7 of David. So we know that this is David the king. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. 
Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. David says, Fret not, be not envious, trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way, be still, and wait patiently. What's the contrast in worry in this case? It is trust. God asks us to trust him. David sees what we see often. There's injustice in the world. The evil are prospering. When we see this happen in our lives and in our communities, we start asking. We we start worrying. We ask, what's going to happen? We do this with worry and anxiety because we lack faith. We do not trust God's timing and feel that it is necessary that something happen, and we will try to make that happen. And there's no promise here, even in this passage and throughout the Bible, that we will see any specific injustice resolved. It's a reasonable desire to want that, but it is still too small. The faith that we have to trust in is one day every wrong will be righted. If you only have faith in the temporary suffering, no ma- of temporary relief of the suffering you're experiencing, no matter how painful it is, if you only have faith that it would resolve in your lifetime, you're still aiming too small. You get out of this one crisis and the next crisis will be too much as well. Jesus would have us have the resounding faith that, to keep going that comes from trusting in him no matter the circumstances. Then we will be in the position to take whatever the Lord has for us with gratitude. First Peter says that God will exalt us in his time. However, if you don't trust him, then your definition of exaltation and God's definition of exaltation are two different things. I might have a definite plan for how God is going to use me or how the world is supposed to work or what success looks like, but God's ideas of exaltation are focused on his work and on who he is, not mine. There's a common call to action that I think we get mixed up. We can have this idea of, if I don't do this, then no one will. The truth is, if God wants it done, he can use literally anyone else in ways that we don't understand. But if I carry that weight of the role of being significant, then I'm operating outside of a place of trust. I will carry this weight because I don't trust God, so I won't cast my anxieties onto him, and I won't experience his care. What I have to be reminded of often by people that are close to me is that my role in the world, whether it is as a husband, a father, an elder, a businessman, or whatever else it is, to do, is to do the work that God has set before me and to trust him with the results. When I am in this space, you know what that does for me? Operate from a place of peace and rest, no matter the circumstances. But if not, then I'm mad at myself and all of you because things are not going the way that I want them to. I don't trust God's timing because I don't trust who he is. Why then would I cast my anxieties onto him? Why would I expect to receive his care? I don't trust him. So we have to ask that one more question. Take one step back. 
What keeps me from trusting God, from submitting to his schedule? Look at the way that Peter starts this verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves. We don't humble ourselves before God, so we don't trust his timing. We haven't truly reached a point of despair of our ability to do anything. So we depend on ourselves. And rather than submit to God's timing, we move forward without reservation. And if we are conscientious, we might throw like the, if it be your will, onto it to make sure we've checked our scriptural box so that we're not too far ahead of it. But in the end, we're still relying on our own ability. Guys, we can wrap pride up in as much scripture as we want, and it will still be wickedness. In fact, it might be worse because it's wickedness masquerading as righteousness because we got all the words right. So it starts with humility. We don't experience God's care and don't cast our anxieties on him because we don't trust him. We don't trust him because we're just proud people. We want to depend on ourselves. We don't want to say, to look at God and say, you're God and I'm not, and I have nothing to give you. I have only to receive. We want to say, God, don't, don't you need something from me? Don't you, I want to build myself up in the kingdom, right? Look at the disciples. Our Sunday school class is going through Matthew, and we're getting late in the chapters. Right? And I was talking with the other teachers earlier this week, and it's, like, it's so funny. Jesus is about to die, and he said this so many times, and the disciples keep going, okay, but, all right, but who's going to be like, at the top of your kingdom? Who's going to sit on your right and on your left? Right? And James and John send their mom to ask. Right? There's, this, there's this thing where they were still struggling to get it, and I relate because I struggle to get that too. If this is the case, if we keep starting at this place where we think that God needs us in some way or that there's some way for us to earn some rank with him, then we're not reading scripture correctly. What we have in God's word is his glory laid out for us in stark terms, but in our pride, rather than go to a place where we trust God, we trust ourselves. And we can even take God's word and squeeze it somewhere it doesn't go to fill in those areas so that we don't have to depend on God. But if you read the scriptures the way that God would have us read them, then we would walk away from each time with a profound sense of God's greatness and our own frailty. We would essentially say, okay, you're God, I'm not. I'm going to think you got this. This is what Isaiah experiences. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So I'm going to actually gave, I'm going to go a little bit further there 
than the scripture I turned in. My apologies. Because I, I think verses 7 and 8 are so key here. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah sees God's glory and his immediate thought is to confess his sinfulness. Isaiah recognizes that he is undone, completely overwhelmed. His sin has led him to, has condemned him to death. And look at the greatness of the gospel here. Did the seraphim say, at least you had good intentions, Isaiah, or a lot of good was done here? No, the seraphim brought a coal from the altar and told him, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. The coal came from the altar where the sacrifices were killed, where their blood was spilled to make atonement for God's people. Jesus is this great atonement for us. The the picture that Isaiah presents is one of a recognition of God's glory, and he humbles himself and receives God's grace. He doesn't list out his achievements before God. He says, woe to me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah has nothing. He completely humbles himself before God. And that same calling goes out for us today. We have God's word revealed to us. We have all of God's revealed covenants, everything here that he died for us to save us. Christ has atoned for our sins, but we are still too dependent to be humble before God. And this causes the chain reaction of our our failure to experience God's comfort. It starts with our refusal to humble ourselves. And because we haven't fully come come to grips with our own inability, we trust our timing instead of God's, our definition of what it means to be exalted instead of God's. He doesn't move fast enough or thorough enough for us, so I don't cast my anxieties onto him. And that means that I cannot experience his comfort. I would refuse it because I'm still too dependent upon me. God's care comes for those who are broken enough to see that they need it. Or as Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 9, 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you are still clinging to your own means of righteousness, if you haven't regularly confessed your weakness to God, you cannot and will not experience his care and comfort. In every area where we do not humble ourselves, We think we are well instead of sick. But if we humble ourselves, if we come to grips with the greatness of God in our own frailty, we will grieve over our sins and we will receive God's grace. We will say, I don't trust myself. I know what's in my heart. If I'm truly humble before God, why in the world would I trust my definition of things? And I would go to God no matter what, Because in my humility, I recognize that he's got everything under control. And then I would trust God's timing. And then I would be willing to cast everything onto him instead of trying to carry it myself. And I will experience the care of God.
No wonder when God asked who will go for him, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So let's go back to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you are willing to humble yourself in front of God's might, you will recognize his timing and will trust him. You will trust in his plan instead of your own. You will trust what exaltation looks like instead of the role that you have crafted for yourself. And from this place, you will cast your anxieties onto God and will experience his care. And this is the call of Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. There it is. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father, the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Look at God's care in this passage. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that same call comes to us today. What is the thing that you are holding on to that is keeping you from experiencing the care of God? Take off that burden and trust him. So a yoke in this case is what farmers would use to guide their plow animals. And we will either, we have to wear a yoke. That's the nature of life. We will either wear a yoke of our choosing, which is heavy and burdensome, or we can take on God's control and experience rest for our souls. I wonder if Adam and Eve liked the yoke they chose, and yet we still choose it every day. This is the God of the universe that has every right to cast you into judgment, and he chose to die for you. Put down the thing that is leading you away from understanding God's care. Put down those areas where you are still depending on yourself and trust God. And there is some area I know, because it's true of all of us, where you are finding your significance instead of in God. And it's especially true for pastors, for elders, for leaders in the church. It's the same thing. We didn't get some higher level here. It's the same struggle every day to put my faith in God rather than myself. God is constantly at work to lead us to put these things down and experience his care. So what's the big takeaway? God cares for you. Humble yourself to receive his care. But this raises an obvious question. How do I humble myself? Okay, you might say, I'm ready. What do I need to do to become more humble? If you truly want humility that leads to dependence on God, you know that you can't get there on your own, right? I know what I've built up to this point, and it hasn't led to humility, so I'm willing to try something else. You can't earn more humility. It is given by God. 
You have to ask, and God will provide. You have to say, Lord, I'm humble enough to recognize that if I'm left to my own devices, I'm going to keep choosing the yoke that leads me to hard and burdensome life. I'm going to choose the yoke that will not stand resilient in the midst of suffering. I want your yoke, but I'm unable to take it myself. I need your help. I cannot do it on my own. That's a prayer of humility. I think there's a great picture of this in my favorite chapter from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the voyage of the Dawn Treader. One of the main characters in this particular story is Eustace Scrub. Eustace is, if you've read the books, you know, quite literally, he's the worst. He's selfish and rude and makes life difficult for everyone around him. And once he goes to Narnia, we see the culmination of his attitude when he finds a dragon's cave on an island. In medieval literature, and you can see this in The Hobbit, that dragons represent the epitome of greed and selfishness as they gather hordes of riches they will never use, but they cannot bear to part with them. Eustace takes a bracelet from the dragon's hoard, puts it on his arm, and falls asleep. The next morning, he wakes up terrified to find that he himself has become a dragon. C.S. Lewis describes this process as sleeping on a dragon's hoard with dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. Eustace starts to change at this point as he experiences not just for regret, regret for what, he has, what has happened, but for the person he had been. He sincerely desires to be different, to be free, and he encounters after this the Christ-like figure, Aslan, who shows him to a pool that will cure him. However, Eustace has to shed his skin first. And he tries to some success, but he finds that there is always skin underneath that keeps him from complete freedom. Every time he sheds his skin, there's still more underneath. He starts to despair that he will ever be rid of this dragon skin. And Aslan tells him, you have to let me do it. Eustace recounts, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. Here's how Eustace describes the process. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Aslan did the work that Eustace could not. Eustace could not change himself. He needed Jesus. You cannot do this alone. If you want to experience true freedom, then you have to surrender. Go to God and say, I need you to make me humble. Eustace ultimately is restored. And that painful part of this, the work that God wants to do, is for you to lay down the thing that, is, that you are clinging to and to receive, receive his comfort and care. And this won't be an overnight change. You will have to keep it going further and further. As God reveals some measure of this deadly pride, he will deal with it, and then he will go one step deeper. He demands your whole heart, and he will keep going until he gets it. But every step, there is a new sense of freedom, a new sense of God's provision, of faith, and of God's care. It's why 25 years into my life as a Christian, 
I still am in the stage of discovery where it's, it's wonderful and very hard. Where I go and I go and I, I see this thing that God pulls up and he reveals it and he says, let go. And in that moment when, I, when he pries my fingers off of it, I experience his freedom and grace. And he says, I will provide. And then he goes and says, there's still more. But man, the alternative is to remain a dragon, unable to be free. Lewis closes this chapter with a great moment that always gives me a bit of hope whenever I struggle with my sinful pride. Of Eustace, after he's recounted the story and he's back to being a boy again, the narrator says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of these I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Our hope is not in ourselves, but in God. If we humble ourselves and lay down whatever we are clinging to, we can trust him. We can cast our anxieties onto him and experience his care. Let's pray. Father, you have made known to us the paths of life, but we have not taken them because of our own pride and our own self-reliance. Help us, Lord, lay down those things that are keeping us from you and from your comfort. It is an obvious exchange to make, but we are incapable unless you do it. Please forgive our pride and lead us to humble submission to you to then receiving your care and your comfort. And what will grow in that is a faith that will stand up to any suffering in this world. Amen. Let's stand as we get ready to sing.
And with this crowd of people up here, we're praying for the Shears. This is their last Sunday with us before they head out on their next assignment. So we're grateful for uh, what their family has brought to this community, and we're going to send them on. And so after the service, you want to come and continue to pray for them. You're more than welcome. I want to close today uh, with a passage from Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.